and welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Welcome especially to new listeners. Um, If you don't know already, we often have special bonus interviews, and this is one that I'm really excited about. It's me, Tammy, here with Corey A. Graves, a history professor at the University of Albany of the State University of New York. Corey is the author of A War-Born Family, African-American Adoption in the Wake of the Korean War, published in 2020 by New York University Press. Let's see, I first read Corey's book last year when I was researching Korean transnational adoption and writing about memoirs written by Korean adoptees. I've personally been interested in Korean transnational adoption and adoptee activism for many years and have reported on the child welfare system in the U.S., but Corey's was the first book I've read to pull these topics together in a surprising way. If you haven't thought too much about transnational adoption, here's a really quick primer. It wasn't until the quote-unquote war orphans of World War II, but especially the Korean War, that adopting across borders was practiced to any significant degree. For decades after the Korean War, South Korea was the number one sending nation of children to adoptive families, mostly in the U.S. and Europe. In fact, the peak year of Korean transnational out-adoption was 1985, long into the country's recovery and modernization, though still arguably during the military dictatorship. One of the things that the system of Korean transnational adoption normalized and legalized was family making across race, the idea that adoptive parents could be a different race than their child. But the stereotype or prototype is white white Protestant parents and a quote-unquote pure or full Asian kid. So what about Korean kids who are mixed race, kids who reflected the racial complexity of military-occupied areas of Korea? What about adoptive parents in the U.S. who are mixed or interracial or black? And how did these intimate transracial bonds affect family building in receiving countries like the U.S.? Corey's book takes us through this incredible history, focusing on how African-American communities and African-American parents saw adoption from Korea, especially during and shortly after the Korean War. Welcome, Corey, and thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Tammy. It is a pleasure. Corey, I I was hoping you could read a little bit from the book just to give people a sense of it, and then I'd love to ask you a bunch of questions. Certainly. So I'm going to read just a part of the introduction of the third chapter of my book that takes us to the moment where social agencies, and specifically social workers, are trying to devise a response to the growing number of mixed-race children in South Korea that soldiers and aid workers are clamoring to bring back to the United States. So this is the introduction to the third chapter. Uh, The title of that chapter is African American Families, Korean Black Children, and the Evolution of Transracial Race Rescue. Great, thanks. When Helen Wilson learned of a a proposal to implement transnational adoptions of displaced Korean children in January 1953, She considered the plan to be unwise. Wilson was the liaison for the United Nations Korean Reconstruction Agency and this office in New York City, and she insisted that the adoption of Korean children by Westerners would create problems for Korean adoptees and their new families. She cited immigration restrictions and the cultural, social, and racial differences that existed between people in the United States and Korea as factors that agencies should not ignore. Suspicious of Americans who might pursue transnational adoption for selfish or unscrupulous motives, Wilson hoped the United Nations Reconstruction Agency 
would support U.S.-Korean adoption only as a last resort. Instead, she encouraged agencies to devote their resources and time to creating plans that would place children with families in South Korea. Wilson made this recommendation because she was confident that with support from Western organizations, Korean communities could care for the nation's displaced children and war orphans. Wilson's concerns were valid. As I discuss in the first chapter of the book, during the war, soldiers and volunteers with sectarian and non-sectarian agencies in Korea were working around U.S. immigration restrictions to bring Korean children to the United States. When the Korean War ended, more Americans attempted to bring Korean children to the States in response to the growing humanitarian crisis in Korea that disrupted the lives of millions of families and left hundreds of thousands of children without one or both of their parents. Although Wilson imagined that Koreans would be able to absorb these children, in the immediate aftermath of the war, the majority of Korea's citizens could not do so because the South Korean government and civilians were largely dependent on aid from numerous international sources. Consequently, Augusta Mayerson, the, uh, she was with the Voluntary Agency's Liaison Chief with the United Nations Reconstruction Agency. She instead recommended and reported that officials with the Republic of Korea were interested in having its beggar and unwanted children adopted, that these might have a better chance in another country. Many of the people involved in the first adoptions of Korean War orphans and displaced Korean children agreed with this sentiment. As the number of mixed race children in Korea grew, supporters of Korean transnational adoption also promoted transnational placements as a form of humanitarian rescue for these children, whom many called GI babies. A number of factors caused people in Korea and the United States to advocate transnational adoption for mixed-race Korean children. First, in Korea, the patriarchal family traditions that organized social, cultural, and political definitions of Korean identity based a child's citizenship on its father's status. Thus, mixed-race Korean children were not legally citizens of South Korea, and they were not listed in the family registries that defined belonging in that nation. Further, because people associated with Korean associated Korean mothers of GI babies with military prostitution, these mothers and their children experienced abuse and ostracism. Finally, Koreans' emphasis on racial purity as an essential aspect of their national identity also made mixed-race Korean children vulnerable. According to Arissa Oh, Koreans applied their own interpretation of the one-drop rule when they concluded that whiteness or blackness rendered a half-Korean child wholly American. Korean black children faced additional hardships because Koreans' acceptance of elements of U.S. racism informed their treatment of children fathered by African-American soldiers. However, the ideas about race that caused many Koreans to reject Korean black children motivated African-Americans' participation in Korean transnational adoption. Whether or not they were biologically related to a Korean black child, many black prospective adoptive parents believed their adoptions were necessary because the racism taking root in Korea were an unfortunate resemblance to the racial discrimination that locked African Americans into a punishing second-class citizenship in the United States. The child welfare professionals and non-professionals who began arranging adoptions for Korean black children acknowledged that anti-black racism shaped many Koreans' responses to these children. 
but they also knew that racial inequality in the United States would constrain African-Americans' ability to complete a transnational adoption. Thank you so much for that, Corey. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, it's a fascinating chapter. I mean, uh, the whole book, I think, is really interesting. But this kind of transitional moment, I think, where, um, yeah, people are starting to question, yeah, what do you do, um, you know, right after the war? Where are you going to put all of these children? And what role do the mixed children play in developing these systems? It's just it's really um, interesting and challenging even now. Um, do you want to just first say how you got into it? Because you yourself are not an adoptee. Um, Absolutely. And, yes. you know, you, you maybe didn't even start in family studies. Um, why this topic? This topic, I actually started my graduate research uh, for my Ph.D. with very different questions in mind. I was training as a women's historian, and I wanted to look at the ways that motherhood were really criticized, especially for African-American mothers in the post-World War II era. This was in response to some of my questions about the sort of infamous Moynihan report, mm-hmm. Daniel Patrick Moynihan's uh, report or um, his effort to... <laughs> polemic. His polemic, <laughs> yes. but his he, and, and people forget that Moynihan was a liberal right. and he was working with LBJ to try and devise strategies to bring about that great society mm-hmm. and to really address questions of racial inequity. So the, the report itself, though, had some pretty damning uh, comments about African-American mothers. He, re- he reasserts that black matriarchy thesis that had developed much earlier in, in the early part of the 20th century, but in a way that produced a kind of assessment of African-American mothers that really flattened out the experiences of black families and black culture. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to explore the ways that African-American communities, even before Moynihan, were proposing different ways of understanding African-American family adaptations. And so I started looking in black magazines, those popular glossy magazines of the 50s and 60s. Ebony, of course, was the leading magazine mm-hmm. of the generation um, into the latter part of the 20th century. And the goals that John H. Johnson, who was the publisher of Ebony and, and, a, and a host of other uh, magazines for a time, one of his goals was to present African-American families as sort of middle-class uh, aspiring and successful families. So already mm-hmm. there's a, a way that it's re- it's discussions about family life are in some ways pitching to a very particular audience and pitching a very specific narrative of black family success. Mm -hmm. But in the pages of those magazines, and this was Ebony and Sepia and Our World, um, even Jet Magazine, which was a part of Johnson's empire. Oh, okay. In the pages of those magazines were stories about Korean adoption. And I hadn't expected to find that. It was a big surprise. And it wasn't just that there was one story. It's that there was a kind of inconsistently sustained discussion Mm. of black families as adopters of children born first in Europe as a result of World War II and then in Korea. After finding all of these articles, articles that were telling black families how to adopt Korean children, uh, Mm. telling black families, and again, this this is a 
it's in line with the story that you began with about World War II, that World War II really opened up those questions about transnational adoption. And in, and in fact, for African-Americans, the German black children mm -hmm. were the largest group of children adopted transnationally for black people. Wow. So the wave of adoption is a little bit different than what we would see with Korea. Mm -hmm. But Korea really did sort of reorient questions about African-Americans' participation in transnational adoption, in large part because of these questions about uh, global sort of geopolitical intrigue and how families played a role in pushing back against communism. So, so yeah, I found wow. those stories and Amazing. began researching to see who was talking about Korean adoption. And really, there was great work happening. Several of the people that uh, I have grown to really appreciate their work, they were in the early stages of their research too, people like Arissa Oh um, and people like Elena Kim and Kim Park Nelson. Mm -hmm. All of these scholars were looking at Korean adoption, Korean transnational adoption, and all sort of provided an opening for me to explore in a little more depth the stories of African Americans and what happened. Mm. Because as the visibility of transnational adoption increased, the story really did focus almost exclusively on white families adopting Korean children. Right. So what do we lose when we miss that this world of adoption was populated and really messy in its early years? And what can we learn when we look at how the first wave of adoptions were, as I said, messy, but then as the systems became much more regulated, mm -hmm. the people involved really do sort of sift out. And the families that I talk about are the families who are kind of sifted out of that process. I see. And so in the in the German context, in that early sort of post during the war and post-war Korean context, um, where there was a lot of contact between GIs of various races and Korean women, and you had um, mixed children, um, you, you know, you, in the excerpt you read, you may, sort of make it sound like there was um, a concerted effort to get these children out because the Korean government sort of didn't know what to do with them. And maybe that was the case in Germany. I'm not sure. Um, but then later there's more of an emphasis on, you know, quote unquote, fold Korean children. Is that yes. right? Why is that the case yes. given that the military is still occupying both of these countries? There are a number of explanations for the transition. One is that the number of mixed race children was actually small. They took up a lot of space culturally mm -hmm. because because Koreans were anxious about the presence of mixed race children and what it said about, uh, in some ways, they were pushing back against the accusations coming from North Korea that South right. Korea has been colonized and these children are evidence of this kind of uh, colonial relationship. But the numbers were relatively small. For African-American uh children, children fathered by African-American soldiers, the research that, and I pull this from other scholars, the, the numbers of actual adoptions um, between, say, 55 and 61 of these Korean black children, it amounts to about 700 children. Okay. So in just in terms of the numbers, the mixed race children were a visible 
and challenging population, but they the, the numbers would never reach or exceed the numbers of displaced full Korean children. Mm -hmm. Now, in the early years, mixed-race children were the subject of these conversations because, yes, of a concern that they wouldn't survive, that the social and uh, cultural understandings of family in South Korea made the lives of the, their mothers um, very, very difficult. And so raising a mixed race child with the stigma of having associated with uh, a UN soldier meant that women were assumed to be prostitutes mm -hmm. um, or in some way, again, related to the military in ways that made many people in South Korea uncomfortable. So the yeah. emphasis on those first mixed race children were in response to some of those anxieties. But the awareness that Americans would support displaced children, mixed race children, meant that more and more orphanages and agencies designed to care for children and facilitate adoptions, the numbers really spike. And so a number of scholars um, talk about, and, and Kimberly McGee's work is really good in this area, talk mm -hmm. about what happens when the social welfare system of a nation is actually about a reliance on international aid and how are children then a part of a, a kind of commercial exchange. Right. So as these agencies increase in South Korea and the money to support children whether through adoption or through some of the other programs that were the foster care programs mm -hmm. and uh, programs where people are sending money to support a child in South Korea. Right. As those networks become much more developed, adoption became a strategy that the South Korean government could use to resolve social problems. So right. the transition to adoption for full Korean children happens as in part as a response to the awareness that Americans and Western Europeans would support that kind of agency and adopt children. Mm -hmm. As the nation tried to affect that recovery that you describe. Um, adopting children out became one of the ways to resolve the problems of poverty and the problems of single mothers. Yeah. If a woman was an unmarried woman, uh, especially in that period of industrialization, as more women are coming from the countryside to urban centers to work, they were, they became the mothers who were relinquishing and I have to say, often under duress. That's the right. I think that's the, the the direction that these stories are really taking is that these mothers were often left with very few options, and that was uh, a part of what happened to the mothers of the mixed race children, and the mothers of the full Korean children, who were later the largest wave of adoptees out of South Korea. Mm. Yeah, you read in adoptee memoirs often, um, you know, a grandmother or uncle takes the child basically and relinquishes them at City Hall or all of these sort of Absolutely. stories of, yeah, duress or fraud or essentially baby theft. Um, can you mm -hmm. also distinguish between orphans and social orphans, which is a term that appears in the Absolutely. adoption literature? Absolutely. One of the challenges that the adoption story out of Korea presents to scholars who look at adoption in other places is that 
these were not full orphans, and the full orphan is the child whose parent, uh, both parents are dead. Many of the adoptees out of Korea were what we call social orphans. The social orphan is a child who has either one living biological parent or sometimes both, but they are unable to care for them. And for families in South Korea, the orphanage became a way to offset some of that economic instability. So some families sent children to orphanages not imagining that adoption was going to be the end goal. They sent them there so that they could be fed, so that yeah. they would have access to food and some education. Mm -hmm. uh, it depended on the orphanage and the, and the agency. So families used these institutions to provide for their children. Many didn't imagine or plan to adopt them out, but that was sometimes the end result, mm -hmm. was that a family would relinquish a child. There are cases of children whose papers were uh, switched or fabricated, uh, not full, full fabrication, but switched, so that a child who did have parents in South Korea was available for adoption in this transnational network. Rewinding a second, um, so mm -hmm. the soldiers, so obviously there were yes. a lot of black soldiers who were serving in Korea. Um, as I understand it from your book and other literature, the Korean War was sort of a pivot moment in terms of desegregation of the military, a site of kind of representational acknowledgement, you know, in the way that the military often is, like we see that with the gay community in our time. Um, what was the experience of black soldiers in Korea generally? For black soldiers, there it's a mixed experience, and I think that I try to help students, especially, think about all of these hysterical, hysterical, ha, hysterical, <laughs> historical slip, yeah. moments, exactly, <laughs> <laughs> hysterical and historical uh -huh. moments as as mixed, because one yeah. of the problems is that we get a story after it has been refined, right? And, and even the scholarship that I do, we spend a lot of time polishing those stories to try and and get to an end point. Mm -hmm. But the histories themselves are very complicated. For African-American soldiers, Korea was the first opportunity to serve in a truly integrated military. Uh, while the political motive uh, for integration was in response to civil rights activism in the United States, it didn't take hold until after World War II. And a lot of that, mm -hmm. the push coming from African-American civil rights organizations was during World War II, but it would be in Korea that the United States would integrate uh, each branch of the military. So in some ways, soldiers' experiences were shaped by the fact that they are being incorporated into units that in some cases didn't want them. And it was really revealing to read the Pacific Stars and Stripes. I spent a lot of time just, yeah, and students now don't realize that research used to used to mean that you sat in front of a, a microfilm yeah. machine <laughs> and you rolled and rolled and rolled. So many hours of rolling like film, that. but reading the Pacific Stars and Stripes and the conversation that emerges uh, from soldiers and then sort of pairing that with black newspapers who were covering this desegregation effort in the military was that soldiers recognized why it mattered as a civil rights gain 
that integration mm -hmm. took place. But they also, many resented that their black units were being broken up and busted up based on claims that the black units were in some ways inferior. Mm -hmm. So a part of the the justification for this kind of integration was that these soldiers needed to be in these other units right. and the black units weren't doing well. So many of the black newspapers in the first part of the war were actually celebrating the victories of the all-black units to try and highlight the fact that African-American soldiers weren't cowardly, weren't inferior. They're responding to accusations that had been made about black soldiers in every war. Right. So they have to prop up and sort of reveal these the African-American men's abilities to achieve mastery in this context in order to make possible the integration that they wanted. Hmm. So for soldiers, they're still in many cases relegated to some of the service work and grunt work, even after integration. They're still subjected to the kinds of um, assessments of their abilities as soldiers that suggested that they were not as good as white soldiers. And one of the issues that emerged both in World War II and then again in Korea was they are still subjected to criticism and very rigid uh, policies around fraternization. Mm -hmm. So if they are engaging in any kind of relationship with women in the European context, European theater, or in Korea, there's a real critique of these behaviors. And in some cases, yes, we need to critique it, but the military's goals were really about policing those lines of race and not about necessarily protecting or attempting to address the violence that women experienced often in right the context of the relationships that emerged. The relationships were often relationships uh, born out of prostitution, uh, that legacy of the comfort women, and you guys did an excellent uh, uh, excellent episode Thank on you. the comfort women. Um, but those are the kinds of experiences that get drawn into the soldiers' um, participation in a war like Korea. Yeah. So for some black men, they saw the integration as a positive political move, but not necessarily a move that allowed for an honest assessment of the role that they had played in the military even before. Mm -hmm. One of the real paradoxes of this moment is that while these African-American men are resisting oppression and exploitation based on their race, they are in many ways fully participating in the oppression and exploitation of Korean women. Right. And that is one of the harder stories to sort of work through, is that this is about, the integration of the military was about a civil rights effort with, with all of its, with all of its draw, drawbacks. This is what the organizations that were fighting for integration really wanted. They wanted to prove that African-Americans were equal. Leaders of the NAACP, even the Urban League, most mm -hmm. black newspapers, uh, the California Eagle is the one black newspaper whose editor was like, I don't think African-American men's participation in the war 
proves anything. Oh, in wow. fact, I think they shouldn't. But most black newspapers and the editors, most of the civil rights organizations really saw this as a kind of the the forward point of that wedge that yeah. was going to push open uh, opportunities, more opportunities for equality. So that's happening at the level of the leaders. But the, for the men who were actually fighting in the war, they understood it as, as, in some ways, like I said, undermining what they had always been. And the victories, those, those political victories, didn't necessarily or quickly translate into true equality in the military. Mm -hmm. But in the ways that they participated in the exploitation of Korean women, this is what is so baffling, there is a kind of brotherhood among black and white soldiers. Yeah. And it's not oh that gosh. they articulate it that way, or they would have even understood it that way. But when you see how their positions as soldiers uh, gave them access to, and and the sense of that this is something they were entitled to, that that is sort of the shared gender piece that, I, again, I find really troubling, but also revealing yeah. about the nature of oppression, that even oppressed people can participate in oppression in different ways. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, gosh, it's so multifaceted. And I just to have... Um, to note a sort of contemporary um, reference point. I mean, I think after, for instance, after the shooting of the spa workers in Atlanta, yes. there was a lot yes. of history, historical sort mm. of reference to, oh, this feels mm -hmm. like an extension of um, the U.S. military camp town culture that's come to the U.S. Mm -hmm. And in that mm -hmm. imaginary, it's always white soldiers who are offending, who are right. abusing, who are killing Korean right. women right. and Japanese women, you know, in, the, in East Asia. But the military is mixed, you know, and so exactly. I thought that was I thought that was an interesting time to sort of reflect on why is it that even in that in those historical reference points we always imagine a white soldier, um, right? I think it has maybe something to do with the fact that as as people on the left in particular we're we're maybe attached to a vision of Afro Asian unity that emerged in the early twentieth yes. century of. Um, yes. you know, black dissenters in the U.S. armed forces who were saying, yes. why am I doing this when I'm abused in right. my own country? And certainly that right. history exists, but it's, I take from your book and from other sources that it, it certainly was not mainstream. It certainly was a min minority of black soldiers who had those views. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? You talk about Robeson and Du Bois. Absolutely. What I observed, the effort to create the sort of, if we're looking at a civil rights um, a narrative of civil rights in the United States. In the early 20th century, you had African Americans who were proposing a, a anti-colonial aspect of their civil rights fight so that they did attempt to identify the ways that African Americans and colonized peoples around the world had a shared stake mm -hmm. in challenging these systems of oppression and and that there should be some kind of uh, unity so yes among and and we see this with as you said uh, Du Bois there were many who attempted to push that as the way to accomplish racial equality in the US mm -hmm. to make it an international anti-colonial a part of that kind of anti-colonial struggle but that that wasn't the opinion of 
all African-Americans. And what I was fascinated by in the research that I did was that for many black soldiers and African-Americans who were participating in the the cultural comments on, uh, commentary on the Korean War in particular, is that they, they emphasized their Americanness. Right. They really saw themselves not as having a shared uh, investment in these de- themes of democracy and equality. They saw themselves as American and Korea and Koreans as very, the, the needs and demands of Koreans as not being the same as the needs and demands of African Americans. So there is a way that when we think about the shared, the legacy of a kind of shared um, resistance to oppression, it existed. And yes, there were soldiers. We see it in Korea, some of the memoirs that I read. Young black men in Korea did begin to ask a question about what are we doing? I've ne- no Korean person has ever done to me what my so-called white, uh, the, the soldier who stands beside yeah. me here, this white soldier, that, that's never happened. So they're quite conflicted, but they also do take full advantage of what it means to be an American in Korea, Mm -hmm. in Japan. American man. American man, exactly. So there is, there, it is not, you can have in one person both those ideas and the experience happening for men in very different ways. Mm-hmm. So there were African American soldiers, as I said, looking, listening to and reading some of the memoirs and some of the oral interviews with black soldiers from Korea. You had soldiers who were saying, um, I didn't see myself as having anything in common with Koreans and they were shooting at me, so I was going to shoot at them. Yeah. That was definitely one aspect of it. So the complicated nature of that history emerges even more when you start to talk about the children because the children also reveal that on the one hand black soldiers were participating in the so-called rescue right they are the ones who are pushing agencies to and pushing the government to allow them to get these children these vulnerable children out children who are made vulnerable by their status as uh, war orphans, whether social or uh, true orphans, but also by their status as children of African Americans, mm-hmm. you know, mixed race children. Yeah. So they're doing the rescue. But you can't talk about that story without talking about what is happening that makes the Korean women vulnerable in the first place. Right. Why are these women uh, in these camp towns? both being used as sex workers and separated based on which population they serve. So at the camp towns yeah. reflected the kind of racial the segregation. The black club, you, the white club. Yes, yeah. yes. And the hierarchy that's associated, that the right. women who worked in the white club were seen as a little higher up on that ladder mm-hmm. than the women who worked in the black clubs. So yeah. the children, the stories of the children complicate our understandings because, yes, they are the ones rescuing. The other thing that I wanted to make clear was that this wasn't uh, an effort to either necessarily uh, suggest that black soldiers were any more or less um, culpable than their white counterparts. 
in the systems that created both the, the camp town sex industry um, and the, the, the adoption, the need for a transnational, or what people perceived as a need for transnational adoption. But I wanted to, as you said in, in regards to the shooting in Atlanta, I wanted to provide a, a more comprehensive rendering of that story. Yeah. Because you can't just celebrate African Americans' achievements, and this was a really hard, hard decision to make because I I understand the need to in in that time period. The goal was civil rights, equality, integration. Those yeah. were the big goals. But in doing that, when you sort of erase the ways that violence and you know oppression were a part of that experience too, then you leave open this place where, as historians, we have to come in and sort of say, this, there is no hero here. Yeah. And that by freighting racial equality on these stories, you actually do damage to the women and children who were, in many cases, left, left behind by soldiers who many... I have records of a few of them wanted to either adopt their children or some wanted to marry their Korean Mm. girlfriends. Um, We have those stories, but by and large, many of these men never even knew because they were just taking part in a system that had been set up for them that grew out of uh, the Japanese systems. But... That, that suggested that access to women was a part of what soldiers could expect. Right. So it is a very complicated history. Mm. But as I said, I think that we can look at these stories and use them as a way of addressing both the absence and what the absence does, but also as a way of trying to offer suggestions for what we can do today. What do we do today when we have situations where we are trying to achieve equality, but in our efforts we're erasing some of the ways that individual experiences don't aren't able to do that work yeah. of providing an unassailable, unassailable experience. Mm-hmm. So that was really what I wanted to do. Um, with the book and in talking about black soldiers to bring them into the story to celebrate the ways that they did try to participate in what they thought was a a truly benevolent and um, necessary rescue Mm -hmm. but also to show that african-american men had absorbed many of the messages about what it meant to be a man and the privileges that came with that even though race there was a way that race certainly affected their experience when it came to these kinds of social and sexual relationships, that they had privilege and power. Mm. And the way they used it um, left many Korean communities sort of shattered as they tried to provide for the children who would come after. In the beginning of the book, you you sort of highlight a a kind of, I guess, a ground zero moment in terms of the Mm -hmm. relationships between the individual soldiers and, you Mm -hmm. know, or orphans. Um, Mm -hmm. And you talk about how soldiers participated in the the physical construction of orphanages, Mm -hmm. etc. But also uh, this thing called mascots. 
Um, can you mascots, say yes. what the mas- who the mascots were and what that was about? Absolutely. Now, a lot of this work, again, I have to, any project like this, you sort of, the outcomes are a result of work of so many people. We stand on the people have said in different contexts, we stand on the shoulders of giants. We stand on the, <laughs> the work of other scholars who have helped us know these stories. So a lot of my awareness of the mascots comes out of the work of uh, scholars, like I said, Arissa O mm-hmm. in particular, yeah. um, the work that she did really does tell us a lot about um, how mascots figured into these early adoption uh, stories. But soldiers would frequently sort of encounter children who were truly displaced or abandoned. And out of genuine affection sometimes, but always mixed, they would take these children in. And so the mascot became a, a, a was a child, usually a male child, but I also found evidence of uh, they would use the term for some of the female uh, orphans that they encountered too. But usually you're talking about a male orphan or displaced child, social or true orphan, who is taken in by a military unit. Often these mascots, they would dress these young uh, young children up in military gear. <laughs> and one of the stories that I talk about early in the war is that as they are being transported from Japan to Korea and in that transition moment where they're being sent out from Korea, a sergeant is sitting there hemming a pair of pants to give to a pair of his his pants to give to uh, one of the children. So they would take their clothes, they would shorten pants, roll up the sleeves and put these children in military uniforms, sort of give them uh, unofficial status. Some of the mascots would go on to become kind of houseboys in the sense that they were doing running errands for right. soldiers, um, doing work and, and in these camps. Some were translators. And mascots, in some cases, were the children who soldiers agreed to adopt. There are records that suggest that soldiers would sort of make a deal that the last man out would attempt to adopt the the unit's mascot. So the mascots functioned and people have described that this was the the human edge of that military experience for many soldiers mm-hmm. that their ability to uh, sort of care for a child a Korean child helped resolve some of the conflict that soldiers felt about the war. So mascots were and the visibility of mascots they show up in newspapers, um, mainstream newspapers throughout the U.S., these pictures of kids, the other very bizarre <laughs> uniform that they put them in are cowboy outfits. Oh, there are lots of cowboys uh, and cowgirls. And, <laughs> and, uh, yes. So, and, and, you know, so you see these young children being dressed up and sort of Americanized through mm-hmm. the performance or and, and putting on these very emblematic um, uh clothing. So mascots existed in the units. Often they were adopted or or the effort was to adopt a a mascot. And there's one particular story of a mascot who eventually as he grew up, they actually, he did join the military, the U.S. military. So mascots played a, a 
significant role in the day-to-day -day experiences of soldiers, but also sort of in our cultural understandings of what the war what we were, what the American uh, military was fighting for. Mm -hmm. The mascot became a symbol and a way of saying, see, see, look, this is why we're doing this. And in fact, one of the African-American newspapers I looked at, they have this picture of a mascot and the, um, the journalist had been embedded in South Korea. And so he takes this picture of this mascot and this young man and he's got on the military garb and the caption underneath says, think of him this Christmas. Oh, wow. And it's a way of generating support, you know, getting African-Americans to send money to support Korean children. So the mascots had a very significant uh, role in this, in the way that adoption unfolded because often, as I said, these soldiers would then attempt to adopt the mascot. So this would lead to, and I think that... Um, it really was the way that the early adoptions were not as attentive to race as some of the later adoptions would be. Because the first adoption that I find that an African-American completed was with uh, uh, was an African-American soldier and a child who, the record suggests that he is possibly um, his, uh, his father was possibly Caucasian, mm -hmm. um, but his father was not black. And so here's this African-American soldier adopting this young boy who probably functioned as a mascot uh, wow. and bringing him to the States. And it's not because they share a racial identity. Mm -hmm. He's not a black uh, Korean, but it's because he had a special affection for this young boy, having taken care of him and uh, sort of decided that the best gift that he could give him was to bring him to the States and allow him to uh, you know, become his American father. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so the mascots were a part of that first group. Wow. And some of them were full Korean. Um, some of them we don't know. Again, in, in the first example that I talk about, some of the records suggest that his father was Caucasian, you know, that he was Caucasian Korean, but he could have been full Korean. And they were a part of the first wave, along with mixed race children who would become more and more uh, the focus of transnational adoption. But in those early years, yes, it was Korean children who were displaced. Many of them were, were mascots. Wow. And so in, I know that for the white families who were encouraged to adopt Korean children, or in some cases, Amerasian mixed children from Korea, um, the sort of marketing infrastructure was largely through churches, um, Catholic yes. and Protestant churches. What was the, because you mentioned the advertisements in the black newspapers and magazines, what were those mechanisms in the black community in the U.S. encouraging the adoption of black Korean children? So many of them were parallel mechanisms, as you've described. Uh, African-American soldiers were a part of the network that would sort of expand out of Korea into the United States. The social welfare records that I had access to describe soldiers who, if they weren't out, able to adopt, they contacted someone in their church or someone in their family. Mm -hmm. Because transnational adoptions Again, in those early years, you did have a few examples of single people adopting Korean children. But 
social agencies really wanted to limit that. They wanted adoptive families to reflect a particular understanding of what a, a good, a suitable right. family should be. So many agencies said that it had to be a married couple. Um, adoption in the United States said that those couples needed to have a medical history of infertility. So mm-hmm. there are a number of of requirements that people were supposed to meet in order to adopt. In Korea, part of that was that, yes, agencies pretty quickly made it impossible for single people to adopt. So many of these young soldiers who wanted to adopt a Korean child had to either, and parents, they would contact their parents and say, will you adopt this child? Relatives. So African-American soldiers were doing similar things. Mm -hmm. They're reaching out to their churches. They're reaching out to their families. And adoptions take place through those networks. Much of the conversation that is beyond person-to-person networking really took place in the black press. And as I said, this is where I see the the role of the press being critical in these early adoptions. Because the black press was providing literally step-by-step instructions. This is who you contact in the State Department. This is what you need to be able to tell them. And offering, in, in, in too many cases, offering a very simplistic uh, response to a very complicated Hmm. problem. So the black press was one of the ways that people found out about and and the number of letters. I did work in the records of the Welcome House, which was the adoption agency Pearl Buck founded. And (laughs) Anytime Pearl Buck, uh, she she did a couple of articles for Ebony to encourage adoptions of Korean children. <laughs> and she often, the other complicated part of the story is that people are, when it came to children whose fathers were African-American soldiers or black uh, soldiers, um, they, it's kind of a mixed bag because they may be promoting Korea, but then you'll find a line that says, and also children in Japan and in Germany and in, so Mm -hmm. it's mixed. But uh, Pearl Buck would write these articles telling African-Americans why they needed to do this and how important they were. And her agency, and she would say, write to Welcome House. In their Welcome House records, they kept this wonderful ledger of all of the contacts that they got from families. And you can see over years, and they would say, how did they learn about us? Ebony, 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 Ebony. So Ebony Magazine and many of these uh, black popular magazines and the newspapers, when they would run a story, they would say, here, reach out to this place. And that's how many of these families got the information that they did about Korean transnational adoption. Hmm. Now, the other really prominent agency and uh, the story for African-American adoptees is the story of Holt. And right. people talk a lot about Harry Holt as sort of the father of Korean transnational mm-hmm. adoption. But Harry Holt, because he was an independent, uh, his agency was an independent agency, he really had very different requirements. His main, in his literature, he says, these families need to be Christians and they need to be able to tell us the story of their experience of being born again. <laughs> um, he, yes, and that was 
a big part of Holt's motivation. Mm-hmm. So Harry Holt's agency, through the work that they did in giving talks and some of my records indicate that maybe even deputizing African-Americans to speak for Mm -hmm. them had a real influence on drawing African-Americans to Korean transnational adoption. And again, the families that adopted through Holt's agency, uh, Holt Adoption Program or HAP, they didn't have to go through the same investigations as people going through an agency like their local social welfare agency. They didn't have social workers coming in and asking questions and looking around their house and investigating their finances. So the network that developed around Holt was also a key a node for African-Americans who adopted transnationally. Mm. And as you mentioned, these are the same networks that are at work for white families adopting from Korea too. And it's for people who do this kind of work, it's no surprise that families that had been rejected by adoption agencies in the U.S. often found themselves attempting to adopt from Korea right. because in some ways the regulations weren't in place yet to say that certain families who didn't meet those standards, they, they weren't, you could still get around a lot of the social welfare mm-hmm. requirements by doing a Korean adoption. Right. And for African Americans, that was, that was a part of the decision that they made. Mm. Yeah, which I know has been a critique from the adoptee community in, in way of explaining perhaps mm-hmm. high levels of abuse in some of these adoptive mm-hmm. homes yes. that, you know, they were sort of the quote-unquote rejected parents who were going abroad to get their children. Um, was was the reason that African-American or a mixed race or interracial families, though, having trouble adopting, was it because they were coming up against, domestically, was it because they were coming up mm-hmm. against the norms of sort of, you know, white establishment understandings of the nuclear family, racial discrimination? What was that? Yes. Yes, the adoption systems that developed in the United States uh, were, in from their founding, they were paying attention to the needs of white adoptive parents and white relinquishing parents. So the earliest uh, adoption agencies, because of race segregation in the United States, they didn't serve African-American populations. It's one of the reasons that we have this history of African Americans participating in what people call informal adoptions, Mm -hmm. adoptions that are not uh, legal in the sense that they went before a court and they became the uh, legal parents of this child. Instead, African American communities, one of the patterns that emerges is that in black communities, people informally adopted. Children would become a part of a family of extended relatives, of grandparents, of neighbors and friends, Mm -hmm. because there wasn't a robust social welfare response for black Americans. There are a number of historians who look at adoption in the United States, and they, they talk about the way that race structured those systems, and that in fact there were punitive efforts to keep black women from trying to relinquish a child. There are these amazing stories. One, I always tell my students this one, 
that in Chicago uh, in the 1950s, some women, if a woman attempted, an African-American woman attempted to relinquish a child for adoption, she could actually brought up, be brought up on charges for abandonment because the system was punitive to work black women. Yeah. So yes, the adoption agencies, and it doesn't, there were agencies and efforts to encourage adoptions domestically, uh, domestic adoptions uh, by African-Americans, but most agencies didn't devote resources to the effort it would take to identify suitable African-American families and then get these adoptions through the system. Mm -hmm. And as you said, a big part of that was that the racism embedded in the institutions meant that they weren't trying to create families in the same way through adoption when African-Americans were involved. Mm. It's it's ironic, too, because, of course, now we see that child the child welfare systems are, you know, intervening in black and Latino households and Native American households in particular at rates that are yes. incredibly high. Um, and so yes. they are the main subjects of this sort of state intervention, or I guess what Dorothy Roberts might call the new Jane Crow, right? Exactly. Um, so, exactly. And, and it seems also, I mean, you, you write about in your book um, this kind of rethinking about transracial adoption domestically by black Mm -hmm. social workers and activists in the 70s, -hmm. um, sort of Mm -hmm. parallel to some of the Native American momentum that led to the Indian Child Welfare Act in in 78, um, basically saying, we should kind of take care of our own, we shouldn't subject black and Native children to the trauma of being placed in non-black and Native homes. Um, Yes. Can you can you talk about that? And do you see a relationship between that momentum and, you know, any of the kind of early formation of um, black familyhood that resulted from the Korean adoptions? So what we've talked about, you know, historians who look at the, these transitions, because if you think about what was happening in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, these are the real formative decades of adoption, even in the U.S. Mm-hmm. This is where yeah. adoption, the ideas about adoption really shift in the United States. But also when we see transnational adoption emerging, And for African-Americans, one of the themes that you can really sort of see if you try to pull back a little from any individual uh, epoch of adoption, sort of we don't think about it in terms of World War II and Korea and Mm -hmm. Vietnam, Um, but if we think about it as as a continued story, one of the themes that becomes really clear is that african American leaders of the civil rights movements, plural, leaders of efforts to create greater equality in the United States, who were promoting integration as sort of that the main goal. If we could get integration, then we would achieve equality. For those African-American leaders, their ideas are influencing some of these goals in child welfare. So in the 50s, 40s, 50s, 60s, early 60s, you see in the conversation, a real push for integration, right? That the Mm -hmm. agencies need to both try to work with uh, relinquishing parents and and adoptive parents who are African-Americans. They need to diversify their their staff. They need to have African-Americans on the staff. So integration is the buzzword. And that's because of that, the, the larger 
goal. Now, as I mentioned before, not all African-Americans thought that integration was the yeah. solution. There was still a separatist uh, discussion happening mm-hmm. that African-Americans maybe shouldn't uh, be promoting integration as, a, as an end uh, of the civil rights effort. Mm-hmm. So by the time you get to the 60s, and especially we talk about the 1960, the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the failures of liberalism, right? And black powers sort of rise as the more dominant voice or, or conversation happening in pop culture. Mm-hmm. That's when you see a shift in how these communities are talking about adoption, interracial adoption, transracial adoption, transnational adoption. And the National Association of Black Social Workers, their statement in 1972 about transracial adoption would become the sort of the gong that would resonate in both directions, right? It would resonate forward in the way that social welfare agencies thought about transnational adoption, but it also resonated backward in the way that it sort of hid how African Americans had responded to the domestic and transnational adoption challenges. So it's in 72, and I I sort of, I pick at that a little bit in the book. I don't go too deep, but I pick at it a little bit because when people do think about African Americans and adoption, that's the moment, if if people think about it at Mm -hmm. all, that's the moment they can reference is the moment when this organization, and for reasons that make absolute sense, when you think about what was happening both in the United States and and internationally, it makes sense that they would say that approving adoptions of black children or even mixed-race children whose father or had an African-American parent, that those adoptions, they said, were almost the same as genocide. And it was that statement in that moment sort of shook people at their foundations, shook the liberals, because they had seen transracial adoption as a kind of liberal effort, as proof positive in the United States that there were people who weren't racist. There were people who were actively anti-racist. And Mm -hmm. how do they show this? By adopting black and brown children right okay so that statement really caused especially parents who had been doing it and think about it in the 1960s the white families and the interracial families who began adopting children and saying that love matters it's not about race they really were picking up on those threads of the civil rights movement and the ideas of a beloved community but Mm -hmm. Even as they're doing this, the failures of both political and social efforts to intervene in situations that left black and brown people not only vulnerable, but in many cases excluded from the very systems that were supposed to provide or, or, or push us toward more equity, not equality, but equity. As those systems failed, 
then the conversation shifted. It's like shifting sands right beneath their feet, that on the one hand, they see themselves as firmly planted in the tradition of the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s that promoted integration hand in hand, right? Black uh, activists and their allies. And that for these people, the adoption of black and brown children was the natural next step. As they're doing it, the sands beneath them shift and the critique is that by doing this, you are stealing the children. You are mm-hmm. creating a way for institutions to avoid addressing the reasons that black and brown families often can't stay together. Mm-hmm. So this is one of the one of the explanations is that some of the ideas about what these adoptions meant, you have to think about in the context of those leading historical moments, this, the tr- transition in civil rights, um, and again, the multiple civil rights movements mm-hmm. that would go from a, a belief that integration would signal real equality to a rejection of that mm-hmm. idea mm-hmm. and an insistence in shoring up black communities and black families. So that's the transition, and it really does influence what's happening in these adoption communities. And it does shape how white families, some white families, think about adopting African-American children. The highest numbers of adoption at the time, these kinds of domestic transnational adoptions, were they were never really that high mm-hmm. in the early 70s. But with that statement, you would see a dip, and families would sort of pull back from making the effort to adopt transnationally, pull back from those stories of colorblind love. And interestingly enough, that it would lead to a greater investment in adoptions from places like Korea, where the history, they didn't, the history didn't create the same kinds of critical assessments of what families were doing, reaching into communities and taking out. So yeah, that's this is it's yeah. It really did become a situation, and and people who write about and and study the growth of adoption from Korea, especially of full Korean children, describe that part of the conversation in the United States about race that really did position it as a kind of bipolar debate, black and white. Mm-hmm. That by going to Korea, you could avoid that and in some ways ignore race. Even though children are racialized in the process, yeah. you could ignore it uh, and sort of suggest that, see, this is, this is, this is not about um, sort of race liberalism, but these children we are rescuing from Korea right. can just come and we don't have to pay attention to some of the legacy that made their families vulnerable. Mm-hmm. It's not the leading leading conversation in the United States at the time. Mm-hmm. So that's part of how we talk about that shift and that transition. One thing to keep in mind is that some families really were interested in a true colorblind love experience and loved their children. Sure. So that is a part of the story. But the other part is that some people really were doing this out of a political a kind of political uh, motivation. And I was most startled by 
conversations that come through in the records of white families who said, we're doing this to show our neighbors that we're not racist. And oh, wow, that feels so, I just, every wow, time I yeah. would read that, there was a, a sense that the kinds of um, trauma that that could create for the child who is then brought in to do that work for this family. So the experience is as individual as the individuals who adopted. But we can see when we start to sort of generalize across the records that we have that many of these families were invested in a notion of colorblind love, whether they were coming at it from a place of, of sort of genuine um, love and affection or whether this was about a political moment. Um, but I never want to underestimate the real affection and love that developed for families. Um, and the other thing that I say is family is complicated. Uh, adoptive <laughs> families and transracially adoptive families face even more you know, challenges, but family is always complicated. Yeah. So we know that love can exist and does exist and did exist. But we also know that these bigger questions about geopolitics and about race would play a role in leading to the violence that made any of these arrangements necessary in the first place. It's just, it's interesting to hear you talk about the people who are sort of adopting as a political gesture, um, given that I think a, like a lot of the Korean adoptee memoirs that come out of the U.S. and Europe talk about being in families that completely want to ignore race. So it's the opposite of we can do assimilation. We, so maybe more, you know, kind of similar to that domestic pre-70s yes. domestic imperative. And again, I'm seeing this with families who are specifically asking for Korean black children. Right. right. Uh, so that is why yeah. that they are they are paying very specific attention to the discussion and the real tensions mm -hmm. around issues of racial inequality in the United States, which families again, when they are adopting from Korea, and it's not it's a full Korean child, they can ignore the 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 question of blackness yeah. and how blackness has informed much of our debates about race in the United States. Mm. Yeah, I, in my survey of memoirs written by Korean adoptees, I've yet to encounter one written by a Korean black adoptee. Although I did read a memoir by a quote-unquote full Korean adoptee who mm -hmm. was raised by a black Southern family recently called Too Much yes. Soul. I yes. don't know if you've seen that, yes. but it's quite funny. Yes. Um, very cheekily written, but, you know, I think gets at some very interesting um, transracial issues. Um, something I was curious about, so, you know, over the, over the time mm -hmm. that you've been doing your research, so in the f past 15 to 20 years, there's obviously been a huge upsurge of adoptee activism, returning adoptees to Korea, but also mm -hmm. within the U.S., you know, moving from closed to open adoptions, just a lot of changes. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm wondering, um, th there could be a way in which your book, somebody reads your book and thinks, isn't Corey validating the system of transnational adoption mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. um, she's talking about discrimination against black families and the ways in which, mm -hmm. you know, they're sort of carved out of these processes at different times. Mm -hmm. But does that mm -hmm. in itself validate or sort of reassert right. this, this system? Um, I'm curious what you would say about that. How do you feel about the system more generally? And first I want to say um, we have, you're going to, 
be happy to pick up on a book called Slicky Boy. Uh, it's a memoir that's coming out, and oh, this brilliant. is by Milton Washington. He is a Korean black adoptee, and he is in the process. So it is in process. Okay. So that's that is coming. I look for it. Thank the you. Korean, mm-hmm, the Korean black adoptee community is quite small yeah. for that first generation in particular. And I think the one of the consequences of ideas about one drop racism or you know the identity question is that as as I mentioned earlier that for the mixed race children if their fathers were white the assumption was that they were whitened by uh, mm-hmm. that 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 biology I see, yeah but for Korean black children, they are just absorbed into black communities. Right. And so there's a, right. a way that we lose their connection to Korea. And it's only through the what you're describing, the, the really uh, sort of powerful moment where more and more people are telling their stories that Korean black adoptees are getting involved. So I, I do hope that we will have more memoirs. Yeah. As, as their story, as they see themselves as a part of this story and these many uh, discussions of Korean transnational adoption. So that's the uh, first yeah, thing I just wanted to mention that. that. Yeah. But in terms of uh, what the work and what my goals were with the, the book and uh, sort of whether the project or my, uh, whether it does come off as sort of validating these systems, what I was interested in was first locating black families in that history because there had been a way that they were erased in part because of low numbers, but also in part because the stories that people were telling began, some of these adoptee stories actually began with adoptive parents. If you look at sort of the way that the historiography unfolds, adoptive parents are writing, then adoptees themselves as scholars and as Mm -hmm. activists begin writing and speaking to uh, some of the the work that had been done mm-hmm. before. So that was my first goal, just locating them and, and what did this mean? And as I began looking at the different places where you could find these black families, yes, one of the more obvious conclusions I could make was that racism did limit black families' involvement in adoption in the U.S. and in transnational contexts. The kind of institutional racism now that people are still suggesting we have to address in order to create equity. And I I mentioned that word specifically because when we talk about the civil rights movement, they, they said race equality. But we're now in a moment where we're thinking about equity and addressing the historical Yeah. Um, roots of inequality. You can't do that by giving everybody the same thing. Mm-hmm. You have to do it by recognizing that there were ways that some people's experiences were gave them a further, uh, they had to work even harder to get to the starting point. Yes, yeah. So thinking about equity in these systems and looking at the way that historically African Americans were denied access and that a part of the work of creating greater equity was to open up more opportunities for black families. So I was interested in how these Korean stories, if they touched on some of the work that was being done 
to create greater opportunities for African Americans in these adoption networks, both in the US and abroad. But what I came away with, and, and this really, uh, I think um, the turn possibly is, is visible in that chapter about Pearl Buck, mm -hmm. yeah. is what I came away with was that even in the examples that we have of efforts to create greater equity, we'll say, opportunities for black families to adopt, that one of the real key issues was that African-American families remained marginalized, marginalized in U.S. society, broadly, politics, and that that marginalization, that really, going back to what the, social, the National Association of Black Social Workers were saying, that if we didn't deal with that, then we really couldn't do, have the kind of transformative changes in these institutions that did uh, create families across all kinds of borders, what we see as borders and lines. So in that chapter, um, the, the last chapter of the book talks about Pearl Buck and uh, sort of her role as an institution builder, her role as a, a race, uh, so she was a, certainly someone who would have called herself anti-racist, but in many ways she ends up replicating some of the very uh, inequalities that she had hoped to erase. Um, and that's really where I, I, I sort of felt the book allowed me to end up, was at a place where I truly believe that we have to evaluate these systems in the historical context that they emerged. Um, and in doing that, we can identify the ways that these people failed on terms that we now understand as valuable and important. But we also should be able to identify ways that for their moment, what they were proposing was in some places truly radical. Mm -hmm. um, and that seeing both of those possibilities, as a historian, it allows me to think about the way that the systems, the end of the story that people often walk away with, it, it doesn't allow us sometimes to see all of the possibilities that were at work. So it helps us to sort of reimagine these contemporary questions by saying there are more ways to think about resolving these yeah. problems and there isn't one way. We often in our stories end up telling a one story. So that was one of the things that I wanted to do was to provide a history that showed both sides. That on the one hand, for that historical moment, the proposals that some of these communities were making really were in line with what seemed to be the more progressive end of a conversation, a conversation that was about addressing inequality in ways that extended into family life. But also recognizing that what they were proposing, the solutions that they offered, really only were workable for certain people. And that was what I ended up with, was that this history of adoption, if we think about sort of encouraging or narrating it as a history where black people are kept out, but then they get in, but then they're pushed out again, without saying that we have to also imagine what would it have taken 
for all of these actors to engage or create a system that addressed the root cause of adoption. Right. And that's really, that's, that's my, uh, what I think is happening in adoption studies now. And one of the, one of the consequences of Korean transnational adoption, the, the visibility of Korean transnational adoption is that we are asking questions about how do we, how do we keep from needing adoption systems yes, in the first place. Exactly. It comes up in the work of the National Urban League that I looked at in the 1950s. They were saying, how do we keep families from being uh, disrupted in the mm -hmm. first place? So that's really what I, I hope that there is a balance. Um, and I hope that the, the story shows that African Americans in many ways participated as uh, sort of cold warriors. They Many saw themselves as cold warriors, mm -hmm. as I said, with soldiers. Many Many of them saw themselves as American first, you know, that they were a part of this, this national moment yeah. where the United States was attempting to uh, only, <laughs> under the guise of sort of humanitarianism, but really the military <laughs> interventions right. that they, you know, that the, they're saying that this is a humanitarian thing, the adoptions, but that they were participants in these interventions that disrupted communities. So the hope is for a balanced uh, telling, um, but do I endorse, um, I guess, uh, I'm, I'm wondering, do, are you interested in how I feel about adoption or... <laughs> well, I guess... Let me hear the end of your question one more sure. time. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess, did you... I know in your book, obviously, you know, you have multiple aims and you're, it's also not a polemic, it's a history, but um, how do you feel about what we know now, given what we know now about, mm -hmm. especially transnational mm -hmm. adoption, but also per perhaps transracial mm -hmm. adoption in the U.S.? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think some, obviously, a certainly a sliver of the Korean activist adoptee mm -hmm. community wants transnational adoptions around the world to be completely eliminated. To end. Absolutely. Um, but they there's all kinds of, you yeah. know, there's a, a huge gamut of opinion on that. There's a gamut of opinion. I also think that each, um, the, the situations in each, each nation, we have to yes. really pay attention to what's happening. We can't just say that every, every nation is responding and creating their adoption policies in the same ways. Mm -hmm. um, we should be very cautious about which children are being adopted. Mm -hmm. And uh, yes, I do think, I was thinking about Haiti. I was thinking about the moments yeah. where there is a crisis in a nation and people right. swoop in and sort of grab out children. Right. And uh, this moment now where we're talking about refugees and what's happening in Afghanistan, what's happening around the world, those mm -hmm. images of people hoisting babies over fences, right? Yeah. That that when you think about that transaction what 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 was really moving for me and and uh, painful was that the crisis motivated the action of both sides of that story, right? That yeah. the hoisting the baby over there was choice. But that choice was truly constrained by this unfolding horror the receiving of this child, right, mm -hmm. in that moment as a, 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 a rescue, okay? And I'm very cautious about that word, but that's how we sometimes understand the way that transnational adoption develops. 
Yes. Mm -hmm. And what I would be interested in is, or hope for, is that, yes, we pay attention to ways that some children are vulnerable and need the kind of care that a transnational adoption can accommodate, but not all children. And that, in fact, the efforts to help communities keep their children. What those adoption advocates were proposing in the very beginning of that story that I tell, that we can help instead of removing children, can we help one of the letters I read, can we help uh, Americans think about the ways that they can contribute to their bread and butter needs? That's mm -hmm. how one of these uh, <laughs> social workers put it. So what I think, and, and I even in the book by saying it's kind of interesting that two decades into the Korean transnational adoption story, the efforts for mixed race children actually work their way back to those early proposals. Mm -hmm. The yeah. the way that uh, adoptions of full Korean children sort of surged meant that efforts to adopt out mixed race Korean children became less of an, an impetus. And then in fact, mixed race children often became the ones who were not adopted. Because of that, in Korea, Korean communities, Korean aid organizations, and Western aid organizations in Korea had to propose other strategies to help those children exist in the nation of their birth. Yeah. Um, many of them were poorly executed, uh, couldn't and didn't address the ways that these children were still ostracized and kept out of. Uh, many of the systems they've kept out of the family registry. Yeah. So not addressing those issues, but a recognition that adoption wasn't the solution for every child. And I think we have to be very sensitive to that reality, that even if you have a transnational adoption system, it is not the solution for every child. So what do we do for children and families who are vulnerable, who are because of war and because of um, economic and environmental uh, crises, who are facing the challenge of deciding, do we stay together or do we send this child in the hope that they will have a better mm -hmm. life? So yeah. what I see now is that we have to be specific in our assessments. Um, I don't think one size fits all when it comes to any of these systems or policies, but I do think that suggesting that communities can keep their children and channeling resources to agencies that are trying to do that work is definitely the one of the lessons that we learn from Korean transnational adoptions um, as they unfolded in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Mm. Now, the other thing that I do truly believe, and uh, this is, again, this is one of those areas that I think many people have very strong opinions about, and, and it's good because hopefully by thinking critically about what these adoptions mean and why they exist, we can develop better strategies for resolving these kinds of uh, disruptions in family life. What I also do believe, though, is that some adoptive families were and are families that are 
built around love. And I say that knowing families who have adopted uh, domestically uh, and not transracially, families who have adopted transracially, um, that they also need the support of their communities because they are building their families and they are uh, loving children and that we we also can't um, erase that story. Yeah. So it is very complicated. The last thing I'll say about you know where I feel as a as a sort of this is a, a moment for reflection and offering ways of thinking about how we approach challenges like this in the future. I also think that we need to pay attention to the adoptees themselves. I think that they offer cautionary tales about what needs to happen, what did happen. So I'm I'm an, a scholar who sort of has put this thing out there and I'm interested to see how people do uh, respond. My interest is in offering a way of thinking about family that includes these stories, but it doesn't mean that all of these stories have happy endings. Um, I recently was talking to someone and I said, what always bothered me about the way the black press presented Korean adoption or transnational adoption was that they presented it as a kind of fairy tale with a happily ever after ending. Yeah. But they could only do that by stopping at the point of the adoption. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to move beyond uh, the adoption, that point, yeah. and in, as scholars, and really think about what happened after. And we get that from these efforts now uh, from adoptees who are scholars, from adoptees who are activists. I was just looking at, have you seen the web uh, page side by side? No. It's beautiful. Oh, Please is this the art project that side. has the, yes. Okay. It's, it has each Korean adoptees telling yes, their stories. I mm -hmm. um, so projects like Side by Side, and uh, I'm a part of a community for uh, black transnational adoption now, uh, that is interested in creating a similar oh, space where adoptees get to tell their story. And I think that we can follow the lead now of some of these adults who can really help us see what happened after. Yeah. Um, and then, and then we can consider what are some of the best approaches to helping communities keep families intact or helping children who need families find the families that are best suited to care for them. I think you you mentioned the efforts of Native American populations um, and indigenous populations in Canada and the U.S. to keep their children. Yes. How do we make that possible? Mm -hmm. Those are the questions that we get to answer now as we reflect on both the successes and real failures, glaring failures of the adoption efforts that came before. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, it's, you mentioned this in the book, but it's it's very telling that returning, adopt, returning Korean adoptees to Korea, which include some of the 900 black Korean children yes. who were adopted, um, yes. have engaged with single mothers and poor families and mixed yes. race families in Korea to say, yes. and mi even migrant workers to say, Yes. Part of fixing this is that addressing the root cause, which includes racism and xenophobia exactly. and discrimination exactly. against the poor, right? The lack of social services. Exactly. So, um, yeah, exactly. I really appreciate that. 
Um, thank you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I think that's the that seems to be the the kind of piece moving forward, as you say that, um, and you can sort of see that in the shifting priorities of the adoptee community in a way. Yes, yes, I do think that we can see the adoptee community helping scholars uh, not just treat their subjects as. Uh, that was one of the real challenges I had early on, as I mentioned. I am not an adoptee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I came at this, I think, in the way that scholars often do, as, oh, this is curious. I wonder what this is all about. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but quickly, and, and I'm so grateful to other scholars who are also not adoptees, who had more experience in this field, but also the scholars and activists who are adoptees, who very gently uh, helped me recognize that we can't just um, sort of traipse through these stories, you know, traipse through the archives and gather these stories without paying attention to the real consequences of how we tell the story and the way that we uh, shouldn't just function as scholars who are extracting information without also being accountable to the communities and accountable to the individuals whose lives we are trying to place in context. Mm -hmm. So I believe that the political and uh, sort of activist side of the story is the one that is most interesting now. Yeah. Um, We have a lot of good information. People, you know, people like me, we've gone to the archive, we've we've (laughs) done that work. But now we get to see how scholarship can really influence an activist direction that will serve the people that we write about. Thank you so much, Corey. This has been such a pleasure, and I feel like I could talk to you for many more hours about this, but I hope it gives uh, listeners a a good sense of kind of adoption studies, of where we are in assessing um, Korean transnational adoption, and also just racial family formation in the U.S. and around the world. So thank you very much. Yes, absolutely. It has been a pleasure. Thank you.